All right, why don't you turn to Luke chapter 15, please. Luke 15, we're going to look at verses 11 through 32. The message is entitled, The Lost Son Saved by Grace. In 1946, a young man named uh, uh, Szyslaw Galuski, um, along with others who roamed the German countryside uh, and were sacking everything in sight, on one isolated farm they gunned down ten members of one family. Only one survived. When uh, Galuski completed his 20-year sentence for his crime, the state would not release him because he didn't, he didn't have any place to go reside. The surviving member of that family heard of his release and that he had nowhere to go. He asked the authorities to turn Galuski to his custody. He wrote in his request, and listen carefully, Christ died for my sins and forgave me. Should I not then forgive this man? Whoa. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Christianity. That's the power of grace and the Holy Spirit. Not a lot of the junk that we're reading contemporary Christian books today. It's not about me. It's not about self. About Christ and others. No one can do this on their own. Absolutely not. The two best known parables, probably the Good Samaritan and the um, Prodigal Son that we're going to look at, they both demonstrate the incredible grace of God. And they're both unique of Luke. To set the stage, the preceding material has been focusing on the need of um, repentance for salvation, as you know, to enter the kingdom of God. And we can just say from chapter 12 to 14 and the material there, but even before that. And the topic of salvation um, of sinners continues here, but now exposing the self-righteous objection of the Pharisees and the scribe against Jesus for receiving and eating with sinners and, and, and extending the grace of God to them. Jesus just spoke about the cost of discipleship at the end of chapter 14, verse 25 to 27, that it even costs us sometimes our fathers, our mothers, our husbands, our wives, or our children, family members. Now, we don't receive that radical of loss here in America, but the people do across the world in other cultures. Jesus then illustrated in 14, 28 to 35, the cost of being a disciple um, by assessing the expense that it would take to build a tower, lest we are unable to finish it and people mock us, or and an enemy that is attacking him to assess whether he has enough military might to defeat him. If not, he should go seek some peaceful treaty. At the end of that, the punchline in 35 is, he who has an ear, let him hear. So all the tax collectors and sinners are responding to that cry of Jesus here in 15.1. As they come near to hear Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining against Jesus because he was receiving these sinners and eating with them in verse 1 and 2. Remember that earlier in chapter 7.34, the Pharisees accused Jesus of being a glutton, a wine bearer, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
the most disgusting people in the Jewish society. In verse 3, the occasion prompted Jesus to teach the parable. Now, the usual commentary is that there are three parables. The lost sheep, 1 through 7. The lost coin, 8 to 10. The lost two sons, usually referred to as the prodigal son, 11 through 32. In reality, it is one parable with three parts. The word for parable is in the singular, not the plural. And you know, parable is to throw alongside. So you take something you do know, put it next to what you don't know, and knowing what you did know, now you'll know what you didn't know. That's what a parable is. Okay? Now, the central message of all three parts of this one parable is the joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Let me give you the punchline up front. Verse 6 and 7, 9 and 10, 24, 23, 23, 24, and 32. They all say the same thing. All three of them emphasize the joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Now, the three parts have been interpreted as the three persons of the Godhead being involved, the Trinity. Verse 1 through 7, Jesus is the good shepherd seeking the lost sheep. Uh, 8 through 10, the bride of Christ, the church, by the Holy Spirit, seeking the lost. And 11 through 32, God the Father receiving and forgiving the lost Son, imparting salvation. So, we want to focus on the longest and the climax of the three parts. The parable of the lost two sons, which unfolds for us in a threefold movement here. Let me read. Then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that fall to me. So he divided them to his, uh, of his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all uh, together and journeyed to a far country. And there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And then he went, and he joined himself to a citizen of the country, and he sent him uh, into the field to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave, them, gave him anything. But when he came to himself and said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and he began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. 
And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what uh, these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandments at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed a fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Wow. The parable of the two sons unfolds for us in three movements. First, we have the son who chose to live in sin, 11 through 16. The second movement is the son who chose to repent from sin, 17 to 24. And thirdly, the son who chose to remain lost in sin, 25 through 32. The story begins in the parable of the son who chose to live in sin, 11 through 16. Notice in verse 11 and 12, the request of the youngest son here is for his inheritance. Um, the one declaring the parable is Jesus. Make sure you mark that. He said in verse 11, the third part of the parable of salvation, again, is the climax to the previous two. The third part is the longest, as you can see, and the third part is still referring back to the Pharisees and the scribes. The parable presents a family of that day, a certain man, a common phrase that um, Luke uses all the time. Uh, this is the eighth. It appears 14 times. Uh, three main characters, the father, the two sons. Both sons are lost. Don't forget that. The son asks for his inheritance. He's the younger one in 12. He approaches his father. He says, Father, respectful. He requests for that which pertains to him, which was lawful, according to Deuteronomy 21, 16 through 17, the right of inheritance. He would get, as the younger, one-third. The older would get two-thirds. His portion that fell to him. And notice that he was not resisted by the father. And as you will see, he was not forced by the father to remain in the home. But he received this portion. He divided them of his livelihood. The livelihood being that which would take from day to day to live as you are putting away a nest egg for when you get older. Now, the willful squandering of his inheritance comes next in 13 and 14. The younger son soon after decided to leave home away from parental restraint. It's obvious as we see the story unfold. In 13, the plans to leave home seem to have been the motive for requesting his inheritance. Notice what it says. And not many days after, 
This is kololitotis. In other words, it's just the reverse, implying few days. That was soon after. So therefore, his plans were already thought in his mind. That's why he's asking for this cash out. He's already planned. I'm getting out of here. His mind was made up. The plans were to move far away, notice, from home and father. He gathered all together and journeyed to a far country. The phrase, gathered all together, is a participle eras, active. Acting, having, gathered together. It was a process in his mind already. His heart's made up. He didn't consider the Father. He didn't consider no one but himself. We, we get the word here for gathered together, the word synagogue. It means to assemble together or to join together. Now notice at the end of 13 and 14, the younger son gave himself over now to a life of sin. He spent all of his inheritance. It says that there he wasted his possessions. The word wasted simply means to throw or scatter. It's used for seed or wheat or a grain, you, 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 so you sow. Here, of course, the implication is a negative, in meaning that he is just wasting it away, spending it. Um, it's interesting that if you never work for something, you don't know how to handle money. And, and those who have won the lottery uh, are, are evident of that. Or people who have been left much wealth and they've never really worked for it or anything. And they go through it instead of having that help them and invested. Listen to Proverbs 28, 7. It says, whoever keeps the law is a discerning son, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Now, how many of us, having been in the world, cannot identify with this story? Perhaps even we were out there. Certainly, maybe we didn't have a Christian home, but we, we decided that our friends were more important at a certain place and time, and that their concept of the world and their way of life, that that's where we were going. Now, notice he did so um, with prodigal living, it says. Um, it means a, a, a lifestyle of abandonment, riotous, um, which both dishonor God, his father, and uh, anyone else, even himself, though it's not always interpreted like that. Uh, we just figure we have the right to live any way we want. And today in an amoral society, which uh, condones and encourages riotous living without making judgments, then it's much easier for people to just fly down the hill without no brakes, um, thinking they're never going to crash. A permissive, immoral, and sensual life is what's identified here. It only appears one time in the scriptures here. In 14, notice he found himself in a difficult situation all of a sudden. He was living high on the hog, had it all. Now he has no money left. The party friends are gone. Been there? <laughs> as long as you have the pad, everybody can crash out and party. You have the booze, you have the drug, you have the chicks, you have everything. That's it. But once all that's gone, where are my friends? We've all been there. He was in the midst of famine. There arose a severe famine. Sometimes in Scripture we see that God brings famine to people and nations. That's a correction and judgment. 
Now he began to be in want, it says. That means he had no means of caring for himself on any level due to his choices. You're going to see this very clear. This, this son, this sinner, he is not entitled. He believes everything he did was his fault. The problem with our generation, we got entitlement. And everybody's always blaming their father, their mother, or because they got bullied at school or whatever. Somebody took their Milky Way or something. Instead of owning up to their own choices and sin. Look at 15 and 16. The degrading state of having lost all his inheritance is given to us. In 15, he became desperate in need. He acquired work from a Gentile. That's how bad he is. He's a Jew. Remember that. Then he went and he joined himself to a citizen of the country. And the word joined there means to glue, to cement. The idea is to cleaving. And it's due to his desperation. The same word is used to describe a man who is sexually joined to a harlot in 1 Corinthians 6.16. You're glued together. You're joined in a way that no other way that God has for a man and a woman. He was hired to care for the pigs all of a sudden. His progression is downward. You might be contemplating sin or even living in sin. Well, you're, though you may think your, your progression is upward, it's downward. It'll never be upward in sin. It's always downward. And it always is forward. And you pick up speed. The pig was like an unclean animal, as you know, forbidden by the law for the Jew. Leviticus 11.7 and Deuteronomy 14.8. A degrading position for this Jew, he's feeding pigs. In 16, he became desperate to eat. And, and what, where is he at? What, what, what food does he have? Nothing. So he's slowly starving. Now, I've, I've never been in this position to starve, but I, I imagine if you, you put anything in your mouth after a while, you got to get something in your stomach. He would gladly have filled his stomach, it says, with the pots of the swine that they ate. The word there, gladly, literally means he was longing for the very pods the pigs were eating. Can you imagine you're salivating at what the pigs are eating? That's how hungry you are. I've never been there. Now, he had everything in the father's house, as he's going to look back. And now he has all this. The father didn't do it. God didn't do it. He did it. The pods come from the carob tree. Edible for livestock, but unedible for human beings. Real bitter. This word appears only this time in the New Testament. And notice that he was given nothing. No one gave him anything. No one was there for him. Now, no one was willing to help him. The money's gone. Party's over. Lights out. Nobody's home. You know, we are all like the moon. On one side, all looks well. But on the other side, it's dark. And each of us get to choose what side we want to live life on. The dark side or the light side. It's a choice, ladies and gentlemen. 
The stories of sons and daughters that have chosen to live a life of sin is without number. If you were raised in a Christian home and you decided to turn away and do this, then you understand this story. If you were never a Christian, then you also can identify because you were in the world and you did what the world did. Just as I. No different. Sometimes it's while being at home that they live such lifestyle without their parents knowing whether they be good moral people or Christians. At other times, it's by the help of the parents because the parents really don't want to be parents. They want to be the best friends to the kids and they're permissive and liberal along with the world. So they don't mind if the son brings a girlfriend over and they're there at night watching TV and then, you know, she's going to spend the night and they let him put a sign out there, you know, please do not disturb. They have no problem with that. In fact, they, they, they boast about it to their friends. Ephesians four seventeen and 19 says, This I say, therefore, and testify to the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, emptiness, having their understanding dark and being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. This is the nature of man. Your argument of how deep you were in the sewer and how bad and what you did, what you didn't do is irrelevant. This is a picture of man apart from God. Proverbs 2, 5 through 8 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. It's a choice that is made by each individual in life. There are accounts of young people who have um, had great advantage um, due to their home. Um, they've had a head start. They have good parents, uh, moral parents, ethical parents, or Christian parents. Um, but they lose everything due to a life of sin. The level of advancement is naturally going downward, as I said. And though they think they're going forward, they're really going backwards. And so, you see their life going from being a good student to not even going to school anymore. You see them from being responsible in the duties and tasks at home and maybe a part-time job, and pretty soon they're not even working. They, they can't even feed themselves. They're just bumming off friends and everything. Now, our society, that used to be an exception. Now, it's almost the rule with a lot of young people. The economic level consists of what people give them. They live on the minimal. Really, not respecting themselves in the ultimate uh, decision. They end up using people and always have a story to justify their decisions and lifestyle and why it is the way they are and where they're at. It's always somebody else's fault. Proverbs 15.5 says, The fool despises his father's instruction, but he who receives correction is prudent. Proverbs 17.25, A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. You see, as parents, we go through everything that our children go through. 
ten times over. One, because we're sinners. Two, because we lived in sin at one time. Three, because we know the destruction and pain that sin brings. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2, 16 and 17. Once again, it's a choice, ladies and gentlemen. The son who chose to live in sin left the father's house. The second movement makes the story turn to a good end. The son who repents from sin in 17 to 24. Notice in verse 17, the lost son reflected on his degrading sinful condition. He came to see the error of his way and self-imposed consequences. The consideration is in contrast to his present condition with the pigs, by the way. The word but, when he came to himself. To his own senses. All of a sudden the light went on. He connected the dots. This is what he had brought himself to. The comparison was about the food his father's servants had and what he did not have. He said, how many of my father's higher servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. And so he came to a decision in verse 18 to change his direction, acknowledging his sin and desire to be saved. First, his sin is against God. Listen, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. Notice that he came to himself. God deals with us through the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't force you to go to heaven. He doesn't force you to turn from sin. But he shows you your sin and what it does and what it's doing to you. And then he's hoping you make the right choice to turn to him. This is what this young man is doing. But first, he acknowledges sins against God. I have sinned against heaven. The vertical always is a priority. Second, his sin against the Father and before you. Realizing no matter how pleasurable sin is, it's fleeting. It's unsatisfying to its full end. And it's always destructive. It's like cotton candy. It looks so big. It looks so good. You put it in your mouth and poof, it's gone. And now you have cavities. <laughs> Look at 19. He came to the place of humbling himself. Notice the progression. He came to himself. He made confession. And he humbles himself. He acknowledged he had dishonored his father. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He understood the vile depth of his sin and sinful condition that he had brought upon himself. He did not want his father to be connected with him or his sin. What a change. So he asked his father for a job. That's what he's contemplating he's going to be doing. This is all what he's going to do. Make me like one of your higher servants. 
The word means simply as one of your employees. Having no rights of a son and earning his daily keep. This appears one of the time and it's found in verse 17, the same word. Now notice in 20 and 21, the lost son turns now, what we just read, to go and confess to his father his sin. His sincere and genuine repentance is evident by his actions, not mere remorse. There's a big difference. Remorse is you're sorry, you feel bad, you cry over the consequences. But you soon return to what you did. Repentance is a 180 degree turnaround. You're walking away from God, now you're walking towards God. He went to speak now face to face with his father. And he says, and he arose and he came to his father. And the tense is a participle error is active. Literally, having risen up, he was on his way. So his actions, his, his, his intent is sincere, genuine. And he was greeted with unexpected loving kindness. He, you know, he, he knows what he's done. He knows where he's at. The word but there marks the sharp contrast that his father did not wait for his son to reach him. The father was moved by his tender love for his son, knowing his return indicated repentance. It's implied in the parable. He says, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, pity. The father affirmed his love. How? Listen. And he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The father represents God. The father. The word kiss means repeatedly, tenderly, over and over again, smothering him with kiss. The same word is used of Judas Iscariot when he betrayed Jesus Christ in Matthew 26, 49. It's also used of Paul when the Ephesian elders fell upon his neck the last time they see him in Acts 20, 37. Notice his sincere and genuine repentance is confirmed by his words. First his actions, now his words in verse 21. He acknowledged and confessed his sin against God first, just as he said he was. Listen. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. This is always the primary one that we sin against. Regardless of who we sin with or who we sin against. The vertical is always the priority. Then he confessed his sin against his father as he said he was going to do. And in your sight. To not ask forgiveness from people we have sinned against. Whenever possible. Contradicts true repentance towards God. Through the years I have... Um, Intended and attempted to ask forgiveness when I run into people that I wasn't so kind to or injured in my BC days. And last night I had another opportunity to do that as I was at a wedding and I asked forgiveness. I don't go searching for the people, I don't know where they're at, I don't want to make it worse than it is. But when I run across them, if I get that opportunity, I go up and I ask them forgiveness. Because I know God has forgiven me. 
If we don't do that, then we really our repentance towards God is not genuine. It's hypocritical. Especially when it's against a husband or wife or a child or a brother or a sister or someone that's close. See, sometimes it's so much easier to forgive someone else because they're so far away and who cares? And it's not so much that we really are forgiven. We just don't care. It's when it costs us, when it hurts us, when it's injured us, and that's the evidence of it through the grace of God. Notice he confessed that um, he had honored his father or dishonored his father. He says, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Exactly what he said he was going to do. Here's, here's the, you have the fruit of genuine repentance. He understood the vile depth of his sin and he didn't want his father to be connected again with it. Verifying it. He spent all of his inheritance to the father and the, and the inheritance never comes up. Did you notice this? That's not even brought up. Now, when we get to 22 to 24, the lost son was forgiven and welcomed back he was welcomed back by the father. In 22, the father confirmed his restored status of a son. But the father said to his servant, I mean, he, he doesn't even finish what all he's going to say. Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Joseph had a coat of many colors that marked his favorite position as a son in Genesis 37.3. Here he restores him as his son completely. The robe on him. The father confirmed his vested authority to his son and put a ring on his hand. Pharaoh gave Joseph his signet ring to rule with Pharaoh's authority in Genesis 41-42. And the father confirmed his freedom and sandals on his feet. Slaves did not have sandals or shoes. Only free men. Wow. The father conferred then a celebration over his repentance. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. Verse 23. Wow. This was an animal carefully and specially fed and kept for special occasions. What greater special occasion could it be than this? None. None could compare to this. This was a time of eating and being merry, which means joyously glad. That's why you say Merry Christmas. <laughs> it's a joyous time. Notice the Father stated the significance of this occasion. Don't miss it. Restoration and celebration. 24. He had turned from his sin and returned home. For this my son was dead and is alive again. The father did not mourn or regret that he came home. He celebrated it. He had turned to God to be saved. He was lost and is found. Clearly indicating he was not saved prior to the time of leaving. By the sharp double contrast, was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. Even though he was in the Father's house, he was lost. He and his son now express joy 
And they began to be merry, glad and rejoicing. What an incredible picture we have here. You remember Simon the Pharisee as Jesus accepted a dinner engagement. And as he was eating, this prostitute came in and began to wash the feet of Jesus with her tears and dry them with her hair. And Simon said to himself, if this man knew what manner of woman she was, he would have nothing to do with her. Jesus, reading his thoughts, says, Simon, I have someone to say to you. He says, say on, master. He says, there were two creditors, one uh, owed millions, billions, the other one insignificant, minimal amount. The master forgave them both. Who will love the most? Very smugly, Simon says, well, the one who has forgiven the most. He says, you see this woman? She has been forgiven much, so she loves much. He nailed him. Absolutely nailed him. The reflection of a sinner of their own sinful life is due to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not because they're moral or ethical. Conscience is good only to tell me what is right and what is wrong. But I learned to use it to excuse and to justify myself. Romans 2.15 tells me that. Conscience cannot empower me to live for God. All it can tell me is that there's a right way to live, there's a wrong way to live. Conscience can be calloused and indoctrinated to the point where you don't believe there's a God or right or wrong. And the more you sin against your conscience, the less you seem and sense that it's wrong. 1 Timothy 4.2 Society today encourages you to live for sin because they don't call sin. Even in the church, sin is not even mentioned anymore from the pulpit. Repentance is not mentioned. Let's just be community. Let's just love one another. Let's help people get along in this world. Really? Wow. In fact, I just came back from the retreat and they were telling me of a pastor up there in Twin Peaks that last Sunday he said, Jesus never called anybody a sinner. Never called anybody a sinner. Really? Now, that the pastor said that, I don't have a difficult time with because I know that there are a lot of false pastors and teachers. My problem is that people didn't get up and walk out. That's the problem I have. Conviction of sin comes by the preaching of the gospel as a person's heart is open, illuminated by God, and then that person makes that decision through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit will not make us, will not force us. And so we're the ones that either repent and draw close to God and He saves us and forgives us or we reject Him and go on our way into greater sin and greater darkness. First Thessalonians, listen to what Paul says, uh, chapter 1, verse 5 and 6 says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but um, also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord uh, having received the word in much affliction and joy of the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit that convicted them and saved them. In fact, in the same, uh, the next chapter, chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 13, um, he says, For this reason we also thank God without uh, ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, 
which you heard from us, you welcomed them not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So it's the power of the word of God through the Holy Spirit that makes this all possible. And then we decide whether we're going to repent or not. The need of repentance is to confess one's sins to God. To be forgiven of all that I've done. To be born again. To be justified before God. To be a new creature. To be a son or a daughter of God. To have eternal life. By the grace of God. It's all by the grace of God. Listen to John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides in him. And that's the decision that we're making. If you're here you don't know Jesus Christ... You may think I'm out to lunch and you walk out of here, you're under God's wrath. Not because you rejected what I'm saying, because you rejected God, you rejected God, the good gospel. But if you repent, then He pours His grace on you, He forgives you. The evidence of repentance is that a person no longer lives a life of sin after asking Christ to save them. We have a new heart, Hebrews 10, 22. We have a new mind, the mind of Christ, Philippians 2, 3. We have a new nature, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4, able to overcome the things of the world and, and the sinful nature. Never sinless, never perfect, but we can hit the mark now. We have a new hope, Titus 3, 7, the hope of Jesus Christ. The son who repented from sin returned to the father's house. He chose it. He chose to return. Notice thirdly, the third movement in 25 through 32. Now, if the story ended here, oh, it'd be so great. Now, if it ended in the first movement, that's bad. Many people end there. They remain in sin all their life. Others are saved. This is the second movement. But there's a third movement, which is a sharp warning to those who think they're saved. And they're not. Listen carefully. The son who chose to remain lost in sin. 25 to 32. Look at 25 down to the first part of 28. The response of the older brothers given to us here. In 25, he was aware of his return uh, or unaware of his brother's return. He's oblivious to what's going on. He's getting home from work. The older brother comes in from the field, verse 25 says, and uh, he was startled as he hears this feasting and the, the, the music and the dancing and, you know, he's wondering what's going on. Um, and he inquires from a servant in 26, so he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he was told that his father was celebrating the return of his younger brother. That did it. When he heard that, he went postal. His father had welcomed him back. Listen to the words. He says to him, Your brother has come, and because he, was re he has received them safe and sound. Now the servant, he doesn't know the politics of the, of the family. He's just communicating and probably with joy the celebration. And as he's saying this, you can bet that he's looking at the face of this, this older brother. And he's just going... 
His face begins to contort. His father prepared the special calf. It, it, keeps, it, it gets worse for him. Your father has killed the fatted calf. He was furious. He wanted no part of it. But he was angry. He would not go in. The older brother became angry, provoked to wrath. He refused to go in to welcome his brother and to celebrate with him. We get the resentful attitude here of the older brother in the end of 28 to 30. Notice the progression. In 28, his father came out and he entreated his son. Listen to the word. He says, therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. The father's then rejoicing over the return of his son from sin. And the father heard, he must have heard commotion. Maybe the older brother raised his voice, an outburst. He did what? Anger there means that built up for years. And you know, when you hold that stuff, you get pretty funky. And all that has to happen is to hear the name, to have something remind you, and that's like a volcano. It's never been settled. The fathers in meekness pleaded. The word is parakaleo for the Holy Spirit to come alongside. Urging and pleading with him to rejoice for his younger brother. Repeatedly he went out there. He could see the attitude, the reluctance, the bitterness, the anger. Now notice the contrast between the compassion and loving attitude of the father who represents God and the uncompassionate and unloving attitude of the older brother. Now God is holy. The older brother is sinful. God's not mad, but he is. That's how bad we are. Hmm. In 29, he expressed his arrogant displeasure about his father's decision. He reminded his father in 29 about his loyalty as a hired servant. It's an insult to his father. The word doulos is used there, not a loving son. So he answered and said to his father, now he's not talking nice to his dad. Lo, these many years I have been serving you. That's the word as a hired servant. I never transgressed your commandments at any time. Wow. Then he chides his father for not celebrating him. But rewarding the sinful son. Listen to his words. And yet you, you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. And so he expressed his disappointment with both brother and father in 30. His bitterness for his brother was spewed. Couldn't contain it anymore. Not claiming them as his brother. Listen. But as soon as th this your son... The son of yours came, not my brother, your son. Ooh. His resentful disgust for his brother was stated by slander. 
who has devoured your livelihood with harlots. Did, did the younger brother say that he did that? No. You think he probably did? Probably. But the older brother doesn't know this. It's slander. He doesn't know it for sure. His disagreement about his father's restoration and celebration of his younger brother is very clear. He says, and you kill the fatted calf for him. Wow. We're not told if the father was aware of this relationship or if it had been hidden all along. But nevertheless, it's portrayed in all its ugliness of human sinfulness. The wrongfulness of the older brother's attitude and words are dealt with as the last blow in 31 and 32. In 31, his father reproved his older son. He pointed out his blessed state. Listen carefully. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. The word son is the word technon, an endearing term, a loving term. As if we would say, you know, guys 40, 50, Johnny, my dear son, pleading, affection, endearment. And he pointed out that his portion of inheritance had not changed. And all that I have is yours. Son, whether your brother came back or not, you're not a penny poor. The two-thirds are yours already. Wow. So it really wasn't about money, was it? His father rebuked his older son in 32. He pointed out that their contagious joy was absolutely justified. Listen to his words. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. You're wrong. You're absolutely wrong in your attitude and your actions. The older brother represents the Pharisees and scribes who were complaining about sinners coming to Jesus and eating with them in verse 1 and 2 of the chapter. Does he remind you of someone else? Remember Jonah? Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because most likely some of the Ninevites had killed some of his family members in the raids in the north. And it wasn't that Jonah didn't know God, it's that Jonah knew his God. And he knew that if he went and preached the word of God and they repented, God would forgive them and he didn't want them to be forgiven. So he finally, you know, the whole thing with the ship and the whale and everything, burps him up and there he is, all yellow, jaundice and everything, bald-headed and he's preaching. Forty days, you're, you're, you're dead. That's a good loving gospel. And he's sitting there waiting, and he just, uh, he's not too happy. And he goes up and tries to go sit under a, a palm tree, and God dries up the palm tree and burns his bald head, and he's all there all miserable and everything else. But how does the book of Jonah end? Listen, because this is how it ends. God's speaking to Jonah. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? Question mark. It's a rhetorical question. There's only one answer. Yes, you're right. Jonah was wrong. 
God was after Jonah's heart. Because the bottom line, people, the heart of this problem in the parable here is the heart. It always comes down to the heart, doesn't it? Always. The older brother was self-righteous, considering himself better than his younger brother, having no compassion, lost himself while in the father's house. He pointed out the most important thing about his brother. That is the father. Listen. For your brother was dead and is alive again. Was lost and is found. His brother, younger brother, was dead spiritually. Now he's spiritually alive. What better joy and news could it be that a person has repented and come to God? His brother was lost, ruined, literally perished. Perishing for all eternity. But now he's found. He's saved. The clear proclamation is salvation. In this third part of the parable. The climax of the two previous one. The two lost sons. Were in the father's house. They weren't saved. One returned saved. The other remained lost always in the Father's house. Wow. Now, I always hear pastors and teachers on the radio and on, and on sermons of the prodigal son that the prodigal or the parable of the prodigal son teaches that if you are a Christian and you walk away, you'll always come back if you're a prodigal, if you're really saved. But it's really, that's... Calvinistic doctrine that is totally foreign to this text. Both of these boys were lost. They weren't saved when they left, the one. That's a corruption of the text. That's sticking Calvinistic theology into the text. I said Jesus instead of exegesis. I reject it completely. All three have the central message of joy in heaven over salvation over one sinner who repents. That's the punchline. Verse 6 and 7, 9 and 10, 23 and 24, and 32 here, just in case you didn't get it. This has nothing to do with a Christian. It has to do with a sinner who repents. Jesus spoke a parable, remember, of that wicked, unjust servant who was forgiven much by his master in Matthew 18, 31 through 35. And uh, he had a, a debt that was unable to be paid. And, um, and, and he just pleaded with his master. He forgave him. And then he went out and grabbed one of his fellow servants who owed him pennies. Grabbed him and says, pay me what you owe me. And the man pleaded with him, begged. And he did not nah, throw you in jail. Another servant was watching him and saw what he did. So he went back to the master. And he says, master, this guy, the guy you forgave everything to, he just threw one of his guys in jail. He owed him pennies. So he recalled him. And he says, then his master, after he had called them, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers, and that he should, until he should pay all that was due. Listen, here's the punchline of that parable to Christians. Listen. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. 
for God to forgive me as a Christian in fellowship. It's tied and dependent upon my forgiving others who ask me forgiveness. Are we clear on that? Wow. There has always been people like Pharisees and type Pharisees' attitudes towards sinners. And there will always be till the Lord returns. The righteousness is their own. They exalt themselves. They say, well, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And, you know, it doesn't matter. Our responsibility as believers is that um, we not be self-righteous. Because that potential is in me, your pastor, and in you. And when it rises its ugly head, we're to take it off and not yield to it. And always remember that we're saved by grace. And that even though I was the most moral person in the world, I would be cast into hell if I had not repented. There's no boasting. There's no comparisons of, of who did what or who did most. or that, that's, that's the conversation of idiots headed for hell while in the Father's house. The other is that we um, confront those who would be self-righteous in the church to exhort them. Then sometimes we have to reprove them. And sometimes we may have to rebuke somebody. It can be in the church, it can be in our own home, or whatever it may be, to get them back in line. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9 says. There are people in many churches who think they are saved, but are like the older son, lost within the father's house. In that day, they'll say, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We did this, that. He said, I never knew you. Now, some are never born again. Others just walk away. So whether you are self-righteous in the church or outside the church, that doesn't really matter. Going to church does not mean you're saved. Carrying a Bible and reading a Bible does not mean you're saved. Serving in the church doesn't mean you're saved. Giving money especially doesn't mean you're saved. <laughs> the only way you know you're saved is if you have trusted Jesus Christ based on His righteousness, what He did for you. And you've asked Him to forgive you of your sins, which were first against Him, then against others. And He has cast them as far as He says, the west, buried in the deepest ocean. And he has called you His son and His daughter. And now you no longer practice and live in sin. Doesn't mean you're sinless or perfect, but you don't live the way you used to. And you're being transformed from glory to glory by the Spirit of God, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. You know whether you're saved or not. Doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. We all know we're saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. 8 and 9. We all are to regard no one after the flesh. That means the way they used to be. The guy was a druggie before. When you see him, I hope you don't say, hey, here comes a druggie. They're new creatures. The young lady who was promiscuous, do you see her as a new creature, godly? Or do you see her as she was? That's a rebuke to me, to you. While in the Father's house. God help us. 
We are sinners who have been cleansed by Jesus. And Jesus told Peter from the rooftop there at Joppa, whatever God has cleansed, never call common. Acts 10, 15. Wow. Listen to Jesus. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 5, 32. I presume you qualify. I certainly do. The son who chose to remain lost in sin was always lost and remained lost in the Father's house. Wow. What an incredible parable. The climax of the three parts. Three movements. The son who chose to live in sin left the Father's house. The son who chose to repent from sin returned to the Father's house. And the son who chose to remain lost in sin was always lost in the Father's house. Hmm. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace over our life. We pray you continue to deal with us, Lord, and we thank you for your word. As you're praying, maybe you're here, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. We're here to proclaim the grace of God and the love of God to you, that God loves you so much, he doesn't want you to perish in your sin. It makes no difference what you've done, what's been done to you. What's important is, do you believe that Jesus died for you and that he can forgive you of your sin and change your life? If you believe that, that's called Repentance. And right now you can repent of your sins, whether you're in the balcony, the floor, maybe you're over the internet. If you desire to be saved, if God by His Holy Spirit has convicted you of your sin, and you see yourself as His lost prodigal, then you can call upon Him right now. This is your prayer to the Lord. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.